Yeah, open your Bibles to Matthew 27. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, the, we're going to be on page 884 in the Pew Bible. It's, I mean, it's kind of encouraging that nobody has any questions for the Q&R series because that just means everyone knows so much about the Bible. <laughs> All right, so we are, uh, man, this is, this is a heavy text this morning. Uh, last week, we took a look at Jesus and Peter and the way they approached temptation and accusation, and, and Jesus stood up under it without sin. Uh, Peter, on the other hand, um, succumbed to his sinful nature and betrayed his Lord. He went out at the end of, of that, the, the rooster crowed, and he went outside and wept bitterly, the text says in Matthew 26. Today, what Matthew is going to do is he's going to, um, after telling us how Peter dealt with his sin, he's going to tell us how Judas dealt with his sin. Judas, another disciple of Jesus who betrayed his Lord. And what we're going to see is that Judas is aware that something very bad is happening. Jesus is the king of of Israel, he's the king of the world, and he has been betrayed, he's been mistreated, he's been abused, and it's going to get worse. And this is where we pick up the story in Matthew 27, verse 1, it says, when daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So all night long, the chief priests, the legal scholars of Israel have been abusing Jesus in this false trial, and they've figured out why they want to kill him, because they don't like him, that he's, um, he's in the, getting in the way of their power. But they need to figure out why the Romans shouldn't like him. Because at this time in Jewish history, the Roman government was occupying Israel. We've talked about this a lot. And one of the consequences of that is that the Israelite people did not have access to the death penalty. They were not allowed to kill prisoners. So if they found somebody guilty of a capital crime, they needed to bring that person to the Roman authorities and convince them that they were worthy of death. And so they conspire together, they figure out what they're going to do, and, and we'll talk next week a little bit about their strategy there. But they figure out how they're going to put Jesus to death, they tie him up, and they take him to Pilate. Pilate is the governor of the area, Palestine. He's a Roman official. He ruled Palestine for about 10 years. Uh, from historical records, we know he was just a pretty rotten guy overall. He didn't like his job. Nobody really wanted to be assigned to run Israel. It was kind of, you, you did something bad at work and you got transferred there. And so he didn't like being there. The Jewish people didn't like him. It was a really tense relationship, but he's the one in charge. He's the one that they have to convince to kill Jesus. And Judas, he sees this taking place. He's been a part of this the whole time. This very bad thing that's happening. And suddenly he realizes that it's his fault. 
He is overcome by remorse, by guilt, by shame. I found that experience uh, pretty common when I have engaged in sinful behavior, thinking this is the right thing to do, this will uh, benefit me in some way. Everything seems like, yeah, I know God says this, but I'm going to go this way. Everything feels really good. And then after it's over, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. And this is where Judas is at. And so I want to talk about three things that Judas uh, either does or doesn't do that are helpful for us as we navigate sin. Because I would argue that we are all going to find ourselves in the place that Judas does. Maybe we haven't done something as big as what Judas has done, but we all find ourselves having committed sin, having betrayed our Lord, and feeling the guilt and the shame of that. And the first thing that we need to make sure that we're tracking with is that we don't just feel bad. We don't want to be people that just feel bad. Look at verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. Judas feels bad. He feels guilt. He feels shame. All of those those emotions are flooding his soul. Sin seems exactly like what I want until after I commit it. Oh, that was the wrong choice. I shouldn't have done that. And Judas is remorseful. The word remorse, it's it's not the word that Matthew uses when he says repent, He uses the word repent a lot in his gospel, and and to repent means to change your mind. It means I was going this direction, and I've decided to turn around and go this direction. It's not a set of actions, but it leads to a set of actions. It's a change of mind that results in a change of heart and a change of life. That's what repentance is. This word remorse is similar, but it's not the same. N.T. Wright tells a story about a rainy mountain. I think we have a picture of a rainy mountain. There's one. There's rain coming down on this mountain. There's two raindrops that hit the very peak of the mountain. At the top of the mountain, they're very close together, but one lands on the north side of the peak and the other one lands on the south side of the peak and they trickle their way down. And by the time they reach the valley, They're in bodies of water that are miles away from one another. And in his commentary on Matthew, Wright says, remorse and repentance both begin with looking at something you've done and realizing it was wrong. But the first goes down a hill of anger, recrimination, self-hatred, and ultimately self-destruction, the way that leads to death. The second goes down the route Peter took of tears, shame, and a way back to life. Judas is at this place where he's feeling guilt. He's feeling shame, and he has a choice. There is one of two ways that he can go. He can go like Peter did. He can weep. He can show his remorse and repent and turn back to Christ. Or he can go the other way. And we don't know a lot about Judas's motivations here. 
Why is he remorseful? It's possible he just, he realized, wow, I did a bad thing. I shouldn't have done that. It's possible that he, he just sees that Jesus, Jesus is his friend. Jesus is innocent. Maybe he thought that he wants Jesus to be this violent revolutionary, and maybe if he pushes Jesus, maybe if he gets him in front of the Sanhedrin, it will call his bluff, and then he'll become this revolutionary leader that he wants him to be. Whatever the situation is, Judas is in a place where he is sorry about what he did. And he has a choice to make. How is he going to let that sorrow play out? And when we find ourselves in that situation, when we feel guilt, when we feel shame over sin, there's something that I think we should do that unfortunately Judas doesn't do, and that's we need to seek out wise counsel. Obviously, we should, we should repent to God, we should confess our sins to God, but the place of the church in our confession of sin is huge. We should be a people, we are a people that are broken, that are wounded by sin, we're all working through all manner of things, and this should be a place to where we can go to one another and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I did, I need help. This is what we're all here for. But look at what happens to Judas. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. The chief priests, they failed Judas here. They are the spiritual leaders of the nation. They are the pastors of the Jewish people. And this man in the midst of guilt and shame comes to them and says, I've done this thing, this terrible thing. And they blow him off. They're already in trouble for all of the things that they're doing, but this is just one more recognition that the religious leaders in Jerusalem had completely fallen away from the Lord. And it gives me pause, because you know, there's a lot of things, the church, the church leadership world is a weird place. Uh, it's full of podcasts and magazines and conferences and and on one side, you, you have people saying that, like, if you want to lead a church well, I mean, you need smoke machines, and you need lights, and you need more video cameras. I was, I was told a couple of weeks ago that the reason uh, that, that, that going forward, people won't visit your church, they'll just watch your live stream. So you better have a killer live stream, or you might as well close your doors. We do not have a killer live stream. We have a barely competent live stream. Sorry. Um, and then on the other side, I, I, saw, I saw an email for, for a conference that said, Pastor, the sermons that you preach are the most important thing about your job. And if you don't preach just amazing sermons, everything is going to fall apart and you should be spending 30, 35 hours a week crafting the perfect sermon every week. And I think, man, I don't have time for that. Obviously. 
But man, living, leading people. Judas comes to these men and says, I'm, I'm really hurting. And they go, we don't care. Do, just figure it out yourself. And I just think, like, John, you and I are going to be held accountable for how we lead people. And if it's, a, if it's, if it's the show we put on on Sundays, it's, it's, it's not good enough. It's, it's the time we spend in a room together with a small group of people opening Bibles and, and talking about our struggles and our challenges and helping each other as guys work through our marriages and our work life. And it's getting emails about people hurting and, and praying for them and figuring out how can we help and let's rally the congregation and feed you all dinner and, and whatever. Like that's the kind of thing that I believe that we are called to be about as leaders in the church. And for any of us in here that are, that are leaders or aspiring to leadership, God is gonna have something to say to us about how we love people. And I don't think it's gonna be, you didn't have enough fog machines and you, your sermons weren't as awesome as they could have been. The religious leaders say, see to it yourself. That's your problem, not ours. And I have to admit, there's a part of me, that, one of the many sinful parts of me that really resonates with that. Does anybody in here know who Bob Newhart is? It's like three of us, yeah. So he has a, he, he's, an, he's an old comedian. <laughs> He has, a, he has a skit where he's a psychiatrist and this woman comes into his office and she says, doctor, I, I just have this paralyzing fear of being buried in a box. I, I mean, I can't get in an elevator. I can't, I can't get in a car. I'm just, it's, I'm so anxious about this. And he goes, oh, so you have claustrophobia. And she goes, yeah, I guess so. And, and he, said, he, he leans in real close and he says, listen to me, stop it. And she like jerks back and, and she goes, well, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, do you like being anxious all the time? Well, no. Then stop it! <laughs> and I, there are times in my own life when I'm struggling with something or when I'm talking to somebody else and they're struggling with something and I really feel that. Like, just stop it! Just don't do that anymore. But as you probably know, that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not how spiritual maturity works. When we're struggling with sin, seeking spiritual counsel is the right thing to do. But Judas had bad spiritual leaders. We, we need to make sure that we are creating an atmosphere where we all recognize that we're broken. We're all struggling with a whole myriad of things. And this is a place where we can be honest about that and we can help each other with that. So don't just feel bad. Seek out wise counsel 
And thirdly, don't see to it yourself. When you're struggling with sin, don't see to it yourself. This is the chief priest's advice to Judas. See to it yourself in verse four. So in verse five, he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. Judas is always held up as like the villain of the story, which he definitely is, right? He betrays Christ. It's prophesied before his life uh, even began that there was going to become someone, someone close to the Messiah that was going to turn his back. But I, I just wonder, like I don't believe anybody is too far gone for the hope of the gospel. But Jesus is, or Judas is, is, is turned away by bad spiritual leaders, told to take care of it yourself. And Judas is guilty. Judas knows it. He, he needs to rid himself of the guilt he's feeling, but he can't. It won't come off. If you've ever, if you've ever seen uh, or, or read Macbeth, uh, there's, there's a scene where um, the, the principal characters have committed murder and they, they are suddenly overwhelmed by the guilt of their murder and they, they can't get it off. They can't feel right anymore. And so he pays back the silver that he was given to betray Jesus. Maybe that will help. Maybe if I give the money back. But it's not good enough. He still cannot be cleansed from his guilt and his shame. And so he takes his own life. Judas pays for his guilt with his own life. And there's something very realistic about that. Judas came to a place where he realized there was no way for him to be made whole in himself. He could not fix this. And he did the only thing that he felt that he could to get out from under the shame. Let's keep reading. Verse six, the chief priest took the silver and said, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it is blood money. And they conferred together and bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. So Judas is guilty of this profound sin and he can't deal with it. The priests, the priests are guilty too, but they don't care. See, if, if the priests had paid someone to help them arrest a criminal, and what they were doing was an act of justice, this money would just be money. The fact that they know that they did something wrong, that they betrayed an innocent person, tells them that like, we can't, we can't just treat this money as normal money. This is blood money. It would be wrong of us to put it in the treasury. Notice how they are very selective in how they are obedient to God's commands. 
It wouldn't be blood money if it was done justly. But their guilt, they don't have the same reaction as Judas. Their guilt is cold and calculated. They don't feel remorse. They have a job to do. They need to get rid of Jesus because he's standing in the way of their plans. So they buy a field. They, they buy what's called a potter's field. A potter's field would be a field that's rich in clay. Uh, clay would be what potters use to make bowls and bases and things. But it's not that great for farming because it's so hard. And so they buy this field to bury foreigners. And that seems like maybe a weird thing, but... In the first century, if you were a Jewish person, the most important thing about your death was your burial. So much so that if you were on vacation or going to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, maybe you lived four or five days away up in Nazareth or something, and you died, they wouldn't take your body back home to be buried. They would bury you right where you died because it was incredibly important to do the burial ritual as soon as possible. So thousands of people would flood Jerusalem several times a year for these feasts. And the chief priests bought this field so that should any of them die, there would be a place to bury them immediately upon their death. Bible scholar Tim Mackey, so he calls this whole thing an infrastructure project. This is what the priests are doing. They are um, investing in the infrastructure of their city with this money. And so Matthew, he does an interesting thing. He he tells us about Judas' guilt. Judas feels this guilt and this pain. And then he talks about the, the priest's guilt. They recognize that this is blood money. They can't have this. But then what happens is it, it turns into public guilt. Everyone in Jerusalem is now responsible for the death of Jesus. Everyone in Jerusalem is now benefiting because of this public works project in the death of Jesus. The whole culture is benefiting from the evil committed against Jesus. And this is a real... This is a real ethical dilemma. It makes me think of, there's a lot of things in our world that are like this. The betrayal of Christ is the most grievous sin that has occurred in the world. But there are plenty of other things that we participate in that are ethically confusing. There's a lot of talk uh, about um, what are called immortalized cell lines specifically with vaccines and other medical treatment and how for 50 years these cell lines have been used to perform medical research and yet originally they came from the death of an aborted baby. And so the question is, so, so when we benefit 50 years later from the use of these cells that are no longer directly connected to this evil but they're still sort of connected, what do we do about that? Or maybe you've read about the cobalt mines in Congo, how uh, cobalt is a mineral that's required for lithium-ion batteries to work, and 80% of it is in the country of Congo, and the mines there uh, exploit children because children have little bodies and little hands and can get into little holes, and children are 
maimed and killed working in the cobalt mines. But everyone in here benefits from that because of our smartphones and our computers and everything else that's battery powered that we own. Public guilt is a weird thing because like, I don't have any answers for those problems. I don't, know, I don't know what to do about that. But there's something about it that just sits funny when you think about it long enough. And the people of Jerusalem now have this new space to bury foreigners. But it's because of the death and betrayal of Jesus And so they bear the guilt of it, and they benefit from it. So then Matthew does something to help us kind of grapple with this a little bit. In, in verse 9, he says, Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So this is kind of funny. If you, if you look up this verse that Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament, you will not find it because Matthew does Bible study way differently than we do. We see the Bible as like this linear set of texts. And if you want to quote a scripture, you quote a, you quote a scripture in, in whole and you reference it. And, and that's just kind of how our culture works. If you quote anybody, if you quote a book or a, a speech or anything, you have the whole thing, you know. Matthew doesn't see the Bible that way. And, and he's, he's a lot like his contemporaries. And they would have looked at the Hebrew scriptures like this tapestry of interconnected threads. There are specific stories, but they all connect. He sees them, he's, he's memorized them and lived with them his entire life and he sees all of these places where this part talks about this part, which talks about this part. And so he's, he references two verses here. And the primary one is in Zechariah 11. In Zechariah 11, Zechariah is a pastor and God tells him to shepherd some people, to lead some people. And the people don't like him. They reject him. And so he tenders his resignation and he says, you know what, you haven't paid me. If you wanna pay me, pay me what you think I'm worth or don't, whatever, I don't care. And so they pay him 30 pieces of silver, which is um, what you would have paid for a slave laborer. Some, if you need somebody to dig ditches, really simple work, you'd pay them that. It's much less than you would typically pay a Jewish spiritual leader. And in Zechariah 11, Zechariah, he comments sarcastically about how little they value him. And God tells him to take the money and throw it to the potter. So that's one story. But then Matthew, when he quotes this, he says the prophet Jeremiah, because what, what you would tend to do if you were quoting several things is you would label them based on the most obscure reference. Because everybody would, everybody would quickly hear they took, they took 30 pieces of silver. Oh, that's, that's from Zechariah. But he also wants us to think about Jeremiah. So he says what the prophet Jeremiah said. In Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah buys a field with silver. It's not 30 pieces, it's only 17. 
But the reason he does that is, is God tells him that Israel is going into exile. They're gonna be carried into Babylon for their wickedness. But Jeremiah, I want you to buy a piece of property here because I want you to tell the people that this exile is temporary. You will all be coming back someday. There's gonna be good news at the end of this road. And by buying this piece of real estate, you're placing a stake in the ground for the future. So when Matthew writes, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. He's like taking those two passages and maybe a couple others and putting them in a blender and mix them all up. And he's going, this is, this is what this thing is like. He's not, he's not creating history to fit the Bible. He's taking a look at the Bible and going, you know what? What's happening in history right now is kind of like these things. And I think what he's trying to tell us, Jesus, Jesus is the true shepherd. Jesus is the pastor from Zechariah who has been undervalued by us. We do not know his worth. He's been sold for a small sum of coins. And we've recently read that the disciples, they ran away. Jesus was falsely condemned. Peter denies his Lord. Judas can't get the blood off of his hands. The priests don't care. And they implicate the whole city with their blood money. And that's when the Jeremiah text comes in. Things seem hopeless right now. But God is doing something. And the future is going to be better. Jeremiah, buy that field because it looks really bad right now. But in the future, I'm going to do something and bring restoration. And I think that's the commentary that Matthew is giving us here. Right now in the story, things look really dark. And they're going to get darker. But something is coming that's going to turn the corner. And we know that that Jesus will go to the cross. He will be killed, but he will be raised from the dead. He will be vindicated. He will defeat death and sin and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is Matthew's narrative hint that, like, it's coming. So this morning... There's a couple things I think we we can walk away from this with. I mean, the reality is, is we have blood on our hands. Jesus goes to the cross because of my sin, because of your sin. All of us are complicit in this injustice. It's, It's not just the people of Jerusalem who benefit from the blood money. It's everyone in this room that benefits from Jesus. And the other reality, the reality that that Judas unfortunately grappled with is that the only way for us to get out of our death on our own is death. The only way to get out of our guilt and our shame is death. I have betrayed innocent blood and I deserve to die. But that's what brings us to the communion table. 
In the communion table, when we take the bread and the cup that remind us of Jesus' body and his blood broken on our behalf, I don't get what I deserve. Jesus got what I deserve. I am unable to clean the blood off my hands, but Jesus can. And then it's only by trusting Christ with my life that I can be free of the guilt and the shame that I carry. And we believe that, I think, when we talk about the love of God to people outside the church. But do we believe that, those of us that are Christians, who have, who have made a confession of faith, a commitment to Christ, do we still believe that? Because it's been my experience when I am stuck in sin, even though I'm trusting in Christ, I, I still have to remind myself, my guilt and my shame are only taken away by the blood of Jesus. I can't fix it myself. There's this scene, and, and I think we've talked about it before, in the third uh, book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's this boy named Eustace. Eustace is kind of a jerk. Like, he's just not a nice kid. He's mean and mouthy and greedy. And there's a series of events that, that transpire, and he turns into a dragon, like you do. And... Uh, the metaphor is, is the, drag, the, the hideousness of the dragon is kind of an outward representation of what is inside of Eustace. And at a certain point, his character starts to change. He doesn't like who he has become. And he meets Aslan. Aslan is a lion. He's the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and Aslan says, do you want to be a boy again? And he says, yes. And so Aslan brings him to a pool of clean water and he says, you need to bathe in the water, but first you have to strip off your dragon skin. And so Eustace takes his awful claws and he starts scraping at his scales and they start coming off in these big chunks and they come fall into the ground. And pretty soon he has his whole skin off, but he realizes that there's just another one underneath. And so he starts again scraping at the new scales and he scrapes and he gets it all off and he does it three times, but there's still dragon underneath. And so Aslan says, I think I'm going to have to do this for you. And Eustace is telling his friends later on that the lion came toward him and scratched at him with his giant claws and he cut him so deep he thought he was going to die. And he tore into that skin and in a few moments the whole thing was lying on the ground and Aslan threw him into the pool. And he came out of the pool a boy again. And it's just a story, but Lewis does a, such a good job of telling stories. We, we recognize how broken we are. And we try our best to scrape it off, to do better, to hide it so nobody can see it, to, to try again. 
but it doesn't work. There's scales underneath. The only way to make us clean, the only way to make us innocent and pure, to take away the guilt and the shame that comes from sin, is to let Jesus do it. And I have a feeling that many of us who have been walking with God for a long time are tempted to de- continually tempted to deal with sin ourselves. To just try harder or do better or put it away so that nobody finds it. But it doesn't work. It never works. And so as we, as we sing, as you come up and take communion, as you reflect on Spencer's sculpture, Let Jesus do that work in you. Ask God to teach you how to accept his death on your behalf. Don't reject the true shepherd of our souls and try to pay your way out of your guilt. There's no way out of our sin and our shame but death. And it's either ours or Jesus's. And Jesus has offered himself up for all of us. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.